This is your host, Caitlin Cook, and welcome back to the Dead Kate Bounce Experience. This week's guest is Frank Chaparro. Frank is an industry leader covering the intersection of financial markets and crypto as editor-at-large at The Block. Since joining the publication in 2018 as its first reporter, he's played a key role in building The Block into a leader in financial journalism and research. He leads special projects, including The Block's flagship podcast, The Scoop. Prior to The Block, Frank held roles at Business Insider, NPR, and NASDAQ. Not only am I a huge fan of Frank and his mustache, I also find the topic of crypto in the media to be critically important. The crypto markets operate 24-7, 365, with countless new projects and developments underway at any moment on every corner of the globe. There's clearly an information overload. So how do you filter the noise? How do you determine what news is considered breaking versus what's not? There's no better guest to unpack this with than Frank. We cover how crypto sentiment in the media has changed over time, leading narratives within the space, how to navigate the dynamic crypto industry and its fleeting headlines to get to the information that truly matters, and more. I'd be remiss if I did not mention that we recorded this upcoming episode last week, which was prior to the news about Binance's non-binding offer to purchase FTX during the midst of a liquidity crunch. If you'd ask any crypto veteran, they'll tell you that this is without a doubt a top five major event to ever occur within the industry and is a lot to unpack. I'll do a separate episode to cover that headline in the near future, but it makes a perfect case for today's episode. Things can take a turn for the worse or for the better in a manner of seconds in the crypto industry. And this scenario highlights why covering crypto news can be so difficult. With that, Please enjoy my conversation with Frank. All opinions expressed by your hosts and the podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of the hosts or any of their affiliates. This podcast is for commercial and informational purposes only, is not investment advice, and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. We are not recommending any securities or cryptocurrencies, nor is this an offer or sale of a security or cryptocurrency. All right. The interviewer becomes the interviewee. The stash that launched a thousand articles. Frank, welcome to the pod. Uh, thanks for having me. This is uh, very special for me. I haven't done a podcast in at least five months, six months or so since up only, I think. <laughs> Well, that's uh, that's and a it's been down up. only since down <laughs> only since. Well, maybe this will mark the bottom A Frank return to podcasts. I mean, that would be pretty interesting. We'll have to chart that out after this and follow through um, lots to talk about on this because you are so on the pulse of everything going on with crypto working at the block um, editor at large there, as you always like to say, but always helpful to start out, you know, kind of that basic background, where you came from, when you started reporting on crypto as well, just uh, for those who somehow don't know you and the most memorable facial hair in all of crypto. I think that's, I think that's definitely accurate. Um, it's, it's been a huge tailwind for my career, strangely <laughs> enough. So where did it all start? I guess it started um, in terms of crypto. I started covering it in Early 2017, when I was at Business Insider, it was a mix. My coverage arena or mandate was a mix of traditional market structure and a very nascent um, coverage of crypto market structure. And that was back when no one was really talking about 
crypto market structure. And I spent a few years there covering those beats, also digital wealth management. I covered uh, Morgan Stanley as a bank. So a wide mandate and an exciting one. It was fun to kind of have my um, hand in many different buckets, as it were. 2018, in the uh, depths and grips of the last bear market cycle, I made uh, maybe rash isn't the right word, but it was certainly out of the ordinary to join Mike Dudas and kind of launching the block in its earliest days. I think it was, I'm right now the third most tenure employee at the firm. And in those nascent days, it was really, it was finding its footing, but we really wanted to stand out as the go-to trusted source of information in the market, whether that be news, research, or analysis. And that's grown since then to, you know, over 150 people spanning different areas of, of analysis, data, research. Um, there's elements of consulting. Um, we have an engineering team. It's it's quite now the behemoth. I, I think about that sometimes when I enter Slack or a company event, I think of that SpongeBob meme where there's all the eyes under uh, Patrick's um, <laughs> rock house and he screams who are you people sometimes there's there's a bit of that <laughs> sensation because it it just is a completely different beast than it started out to be yeah i mean crypto news it's I, it's such an exciting place to be i'd have to imagine too and scaled so quickly just because there's information overload in crypto but again that trust part is so important especially when you know, there are so many people that are running around anonymous. A lot of the information is, you know, it's hard to kind of vet a lot of that, which is sort of where I want to start in terms of, you know, how you go through, you know, some of the information that you get, what's, you know, what you consider breaking news versus not when there's so much information coming out. But first, I think more around sentiment in the market and from like retail investors at large and society in general, since you started, you said 2017, right? Like that's, a crazy time to your point to be making the switch into working in crypto peak bear market. Um, pretty ugly. I would have to imagine I was not in crypto at the time, but what I've heard, not great. Um, what have you seen from the time that you started working and covering the crypto space deep in that bear market in 2017 up to today, where we're also seeing, you know, suboptimal market conditions in crypto right now? Yeah, it's a good question. I think it's been interesting to see Bitcoin specifically take on different narratives throughout the past five or so years. When I began covering it, I was sifting through banknotes from the likes of Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs about how it was a suboptimal uh, mechanism of payment, despite evangelists touting it as such. We then went from that narrative to more of a store of value narrative during the uh, COVID pandemic and afterwards. And now it seems like we are trying to search for a new narrative, given the fact that it hasn't stored a lot of value over the past few years, as it were, and it as, hasn't necessarily operated as an inflation hedge. But I think there are some folks in various corners of the market who are still holding on to that gold as well, hasn't done that well. And we are sort of in the maybe early stages of what could be a longer lasting economic downturn. So I think the fact that it's kept this price um, 
floor of around $20,000 and has actually seen volatility drastically decline could be actually looked at as a positive indicator. Thinking about the space overall, I do believe, unlike the 2017 cycle that saw a Cambrian explosion of different coins like IOTA and and others that we don't really talk about as often, especially in that long tail of, of ICOs, I think this new wave of darlings, withstanding, of course, Terra Luna, but I'm thinking of Avalanche and Solana and many of the others that have gone out and raised from very reputable funds, I think they all have much more sticking power. And I wouldn't be surprised if once we get back into a bull cycle, some of those names will still be there, unlike the past cycle where we we talk about them as ghost coins, BSV, uh, Bitcoin Cash, perhaps. Not to not to hit on them specifically. I don't want anyone coming after me, but they certainly don't have the gravitas that they did, at least from a price perspective. But I do imagine, just given the fact that there is this vast amount of venture capital money, even if price sort of uh, doesn't recover to the to the highs that were achieved. I think that there is some sticking power in these projects being around to some in some form or another. So those are sort of the two takeaways uh, juxtaposing Bitcoin with the broader landscape of tokens. What else has changed? I mean, just the sheer amount of capital again, that that really didn't exist when I first started covering the space. Fundraisers were much smaller um, and you just didn't have this sheer amount of capital. I think even for my podcast over the course of the last year, we're going to do a thread on this and add up all the numbers, but just on guests who have come on to break their fundraise or rather their um, a a new VC launch, I think we're almost at a billion dollars and just the ones that have announced through the scoop. So that's that's a lot of money. And that was money that wasn't necessarily there um, in the previous cycle. I do think a lot of stuff will happen over the next few years that don't translate into price because of the macro picture, but you're going to have a lot of interesting experiments similar to, and especially in gaming and, and NFT, similar to uh, what you saw with Tiffany's and CryptoPunks or Gucci experimenting with ApeCoin. Um, a lot of these brands, I think, will continue to expand into that and, and explore it. But of course, you know, you're going to have bumps uh, along the road. For instance, we're probably going to report in the next few days that FTX has kind of stepped back on their own um, uh, kind of journey into luxury goods, and and they kind of stood up a, a little business around that. But you know, in a bear market, you really have to double down on what your core strengths are. So as some of these things see adoption. I, I won't be surprised at all if there are certain drawbacks, and that's that will that kind of takes me to the maybe third conclusion or the third point that I'd know on the differences. The the grownups in the room of 2017, these really um, you know high ambition startups that kind of came in to serve institutions, they ended up being the ones hit the hardest in this cycle with the credit crisis that swept the entire market as a result of first Terra Luna blowing up and then later um, the now infamous Three Arrows Capital. And that really, I mean, it's funny, 
um, that really hit a lot of the players that I have written about for the past three years. So I'm kind of trying to reconfigure where my focus is and, and where my sources are, because a lot of these firms are either bankrupt or have scaled down to the point that they don't make that much news. So I was actually speaking with a friend today about this existential crisis that I have where many of those companies that I would, you know, write prolifically about are not, are not doing as, as much. So that's, that's the third point I'll make. So many different things to say there, but I want to start with the last one. So looking at those who came out of 2017 as kind of the big dogs, right? Where did they go wrong on that? I mean, I know it's some of it's a bit situationally uh, specific in terms of like the firm and some of the situations that we saw unfold recently. But overall, is there a common theme where that sort of led astray for those sort of blowups that we've seen in the headlines over the past six to 12 months? Yeah, absolutely. I think the common thread is... Um, when you have an abundance of, well, I would say an abundance of capital breeds a lack of discipline, which is what we saw in the ICO boom. When you have too much money, you spend recklessly. In the instance of what we saw in the crypto credit market, you had a number of firms that have raised that had raised heaps of capital at very high valuations. And what that led to was sort of a race to the bottom, a race to the bottom in terms of the, the amount of credit or the extent to which they will finance counterparties with maybe not so rosy um, with a not so rosy credit picture. Um, and that's because all of their competitors with lots of capital and venture funding behind them were able to do the same because of that hefty amount of venture capital that they could use to support giving really good rates and lending out to not so good credit uh, creditors. So the juxtaposition of that um, really led to what we saw. Of course, you have macro playing a role. You had a lot of um, what what you call black swan events, right? With Terra Luna being unable to maintain um, its peg and confidence in the market, um, which kind of resulted in the three arrows meltdown. No one knew how much these guys had borrowed at all. And no one knew that they were borrowing from their competitors with the money they lent, um, which possibly is what transpired. So though the lessons are right. I mean, there's an old expression. There are three things that can kill a man, love, liquor, and leverage, (laughs) and that we were victim of the latter. I don't know how I've never heard that before, but I'm going to pencil that down for later so I can refer back. Um, you make a great point on around like capital too, right? It's just such a double-edged sword where it provides so much opportunity and so much growth for a space, but also, you know, that too quote, much by the it. way, is <laughs> is from Warren Buffett. Classic. Just, just for you to just for your audience's own edification. There we go. Thank you for that, for the disclosure there. <laughs> Um, I, I think capital, you know, and we've seen this unfold is like after 2017 or even in the last year or so, you just see every main, you know, major VC trying to get a foot in the door in crypto, whether they have, you know, the teams built out, whether they're building those teams in real time and just trying to throw money into this space that's been so explosive to your point, such a double-edged sword. And we've seen a ton of opportunity come from it as well as 
you know, a lot of blowups and, you know, not be that capital, not being used maybe efficiently or effectively as it could be people, not, you know, uh, from the investor side, not looking necessarily into counterparty risk or not having the transparency there for, um, from that side of things. And we've definitely seen the good, the bad and the ugly unfold in that regard. Um, but kind of focusing on moving forward. So you get such a broad view of everything that's going on in this space, really, because the block is reporting on all of these things. You mentioned inflation hedge or store of value kind of being those old, um, more commonly used narratives for crypto and maybe Bitcoin specifically. What do you foresee being that next story as we kind of go into a new chapter, hopefully eventually getting out of this bear market here and seeing some more, uh, innovations and whatnot. Yeah. I mean, the macro environment is certainly in the driver's seat as it were. So a lot of, a lot of what happens next is contingent on, on that improving or not improving. I will say looking back though, that was another component, right? When you have unbridled fervor and tons of interest and FOMO from both an institutional and retail perspective, everyone needs to play catch up. I think it was um, the former president of of Citigroup, a gentleman named John Mack. Let me just make sure that's right. Maybe he was the president of Bank of America. Yeah, John Mack of, of Morgan Stanley. All right, I was close. He said, well, the music plays, you have to dance. And I think that's basically what we we saw happen. Looking forward, I think you'll see a consolidation, right? And we've already seen that with FTX sort of gobble up various different assets. I think another thing that'll be important to look out for is whether or not we get any sort of regulatory clarity out of either Congress or our, our uh, regulatory agencies and whether or not the industry will even maybe look into itself and try to devise some sort of ranking or um, you know system of of guidance for um, disclosures and and transparency. Not not super similar to what maybe an S one looks like, but some sort of token registry that can maybe help us have a more transparent landscape that can avoid. Um, uh, on unbridled froth or unbridled um, risk. I think speaking to the point of risk, um, you've also had a lot of these lending firms step back and get more conservative, ask for better collateral, or uh, basically stop working with certain counterparties altogether. So there is a lot less risk in the system at this point. And I would be surprised if that returns to the same extent because, I mean, look look what happened, right? You had a number of, unlike you know the Wall Street uh, financial crisis, you had a number of executive CEOs get fired or step down. So to some extent, there was um, consequences, and a lot of these beleaguered firms, you know, they're not going to. Unlike because I think maybe retail it was so hit directly, right? I trusted my funds with this brokerage and now it's bankrupt. You can't win that trust back. Um, it's hard on Wall Street as well, but I think it's a bit more difficult. You know, Bank of America, City, and 
and the rest of them, they still trade mortgage-backed securities, right? It's not like that went away. But I don't think some of these these startups are going to have the same um, ease of of regaining um, their clients. So those are some of the things I'm thinking about. I guess the the introduction of more restraint, more risk management, as well as maybe the introduction of more regulatory clarity are things I think to look for to add a bit more robustness or a bit more maturity to what is known to be a very wild west industry. You mentioned trust, which I think is at the core of really everything built in this space, which is funny because it's always, you know, the word is trustless, right? But when you're scaling something up in the early days, you're not a JP Morgan and Morgan Stanley that has that track record, that institutional support, the widespread network of users that have deeply rooted kind of their businesses in that infrastructure. And it would be pretty difficult to, you know, make that switch at scale. So especially, you know, looking forward in terms of doing things the right way and trying to, you know, for a reasonable standpoint, protect investors and making sure risk management, um, you know, is in place uh, properly and whatnot. I have to go back to regulation because that is something that I talk about almost every episode, just because it's such a big topic, right? And that's at the center of everything. But from your perspective, you know, there's always reports coming out on different proposals from people in um, positions of power. There's self talk of self regulatory agencies. There's talk from leaders in the crypto space about, you know, who should be doing what and why or who shouldn't be doing what and why. From the vantage point that you have in terms of the regulatory landscape in the US, where where do you see things going and how do you see it panning out? I know that's a big question, but you know, in terms of the information that is coming out through the block and other media outlets, everyone has something to say about it. And I think a lot of people are really just waiting for more of a clear roadmap for the future still, of course. Well, there was Obviously, what you're describing was on full display over the weekend between one Sam Bankman-Fried and Eric Voorhees in their in their very relatively, I thought, respectful uh, dialogue on on the future of crypto regulations. I would say it was it was interesting. I, I understand where Mr. Voorhees is coming from, but I thought it did lack a degree of nuance and distinction and distinguishing between a banning DeFi perhaps and and maybe B making so that if you want to host a zero KYC front end for DeFi, you have to be non-American or use IPFS, for example. The there are two camps, right? There's a camp of, you know, if you chip away at any of the decentralization, whether it be front end or back end, then the whole point is mute and we might as well just rely on traditional payment and financial markets infrastructure. There's another, the other side of of the proverbial coin is that if you don't to some degree, if you don't to some degree kowtow to the folks who will be deciding what the fate is for this market, then then they're going to decide that fate for us and we'll have little to no impact on achieving political wins, as it were. I do think the degree to which the um, there is 
the the political force, especially in elections the way they are now, where um, in many, in most areas, well, rather the, the the political climate is such that districts I feel like are either very red or very blue. But for the ones that aren't, you can very easily shift um, an election on on just one key issue. And I think if you look at a state like Georgia, where elections are now very close, or um, states like Arizona and Nevada, where where you've seen fairly close elections, if you can kind of lean in on a populace that you know cares about their savings and what they've put money into, then I think that can sort of turn um, an election in your favor. So politicians have to pay attention to it. There was a great survey this this afternoon, or rather this morning, from Grayscale that showed. More than half of Americans surveyed, uh, 53% agree that cryptocurrencies are the future of finance. And so that includes 59% of Democrats and 52% of Republicans. 44% of Americans noted that they expect to have crypto as part of their investment portfolio. So I guess the point I'm making here is that when you have that number of, when you have that percentage of folks who you know, if if they're invested in it, then they care about it to some degree. Uh, invested in crypto, then it's certainly going to be a a policy um, issue of importance to them when they vote. So, I wouldn't be surprised if over the next year, unless like crypto goes to like, you know, if it's worthless, then people won't care. But if it stays at these levels, I wouldn't be surprised if you saw um, a wave of of new politicians that we haven't heard about becoming um, advocates to a certain degree. You've already had some. Um, Tom Emmer uh, also is getting more interested in it. Uh, Richie Torres, my former representative in the Bronx, as well. So uh, there is a tide that's turning there. So definitely keep an eye on that because I think you'll see, you'll see uh, um, more folks in Congress that are keen to advocate for this space to a degree. It's so interesting to think about, you know, the difference between five years ago and now where to your point, I think crypto in the regulation of that in the States is going to be a really big topic come election season. And I mean, it's very much a big topic now as well. Never would have thought that would be the case, but it is interesting too that um, had someone on previously on the podcast too talking about you know it's not even necessarily like a a bipartisan issue or a point of kind of argument amongst the left and the right side of the aisle too right like to your point would you say fifty nine percent and fifty three percent for Republican it, and Democrat it is it is um it is bipartisan it's not partisan it's it's very that's much what I mean there you go something that's shared <laughs> across um both sides of the aisle for sure. I do think that in, I mean, I, I was actually surprised. I thought it'd be talked about more in this midterm cycle, especially because of the sheer amount of money. I mean, I spoke with Ryan Salem at FTX and um, he, he told me, and we, and we published this, uh, he spent, I'm sure it's all public data on open secrets or whatever, $13 million in this, in this cycle uh, personally, which is quite, extraordinary. Um, and actually a colleague of mine, this is interesting that I could maybe share, um, created a little chart for me um, that shows the political contributions from various crypto 
entities, we have eight hour delete on our signal, so it might not be there. Um, yeah, if you look at the top, um, you have Ken Griffin, kind of crypto related. You have Jeffrey Yass, who runs um, Susquehanna. Mm-hmm. And I think he donated even some Bitcoin, it was reported. Um, Sam Bankman uh, Freed of Alameda and FTX, he is fifth donating $39.2 million. And um, then the rest aren't really crypto. Peter Thiel is in there at 30 million. He's um, behind Founders Fund, which has done some crypto. So there's money in the system that hasn't been there at this scale ever before. And going back to my point, I was surprised about about it not being talked enough in debates. Uh, It was mentioned in the New York gubernatorial debate between Lee Zeldin and and Kathy uh, Hochul. They discussed uh, Bitcoin mining in upstate New York. So it has had some presence, but I don't think the presence reflects the amount of of money that is now um, being thrown at our, our representatives to maybe impact their thinking on this issue. Money. And then also just from a social standpoint of like, you want to talk about the you most want to be in the cool, You want to be at the cool parties too. Yeah, exactly. I mean, even in a bear market, there are lots of crypto parties being thrown. So always something to consider apparently. But it, it is interesting too, even in the depths of a bear market that, you know, this is still so deeply rooted in conversation across society too. It's like one of the hottest topics around, um, depending on, you know, if you're positive or negative on it, either way, still, you know, very much top of mind for a lot of people. And um, I, I don't know where I was fully going with that, but it's just very interesting to see that kind of break into the the political side of things as well. It wouldn't have been on my bingo card if I had been in crypto five years ago, that this is where we'd be at, but it's super interesting to see unfold in real time. I know. And even in Hong Kong, they've kind of um, stepped back from their more draconian anti-crypto stance and appear to be more welcoming. The UK has been very welcoming. I feel like Paris and London have a a bit of a, a battle over being the crypto hub that is uh, transpiring currently. At least I I feel like that's the case. But yeah, it's certainly it's certainly positive. I would say, looking at, and I'm like the I I, I go to Washington sometimes, but I'm at the bottom of the list of of experts. I'm just telling you what people tell me. But I would describe it as such that you have an SEC that is um, a bit uncooperative. Um, and and it's funny because if you talk to them, they would say the crypto companies are uncooperative. So I guess it's depending on which side. But it's definitely not sort of where most crypto people would want them to be. I think that's fair to say. But if you talk to many of the national security agencies, they're very pro-crypto and they understand that the technology offers them a way to suss out nefarious behavior through the transparency of the, of that ledger and then i think from a political from a political perspective it's over it's you know you have your standouts like the senator browns um, and senator warrens of the world but i think overall there is bipartisan support of crypto because of the partisan support that exists um, within their constituent populations. So very, very, very positive from the legislature side 
very positive national security and defense, um, but maybe not so positive um, from the regulatory perspective. Yeah, lots to lots to work out there too. And just even kind of segueing into another topic that I think is really important for kind of the crowd that this podcast is targeting, which is more of, you know, the traditional finance people trying to wrap their heads around this space and sort of sift through everything that they're seeing in the news. Like regulation, obviously top of mind for anyone working for a, you know, very highly regulated traditional financial institution, whether that's a bank or otherwise, regulation is something that you know, that is one of the first things that they want clarity on and need information about and trying to figure out how that'll work. But to your point, I mean, there are a lot of, there are a lot of stereotypes around the space and one is around kind of used for nefarious activities and whatnot, but those in in power, I feel like do understand the, the transparency part of it and the benefits that it brings. And I think that's important for those who are coming into the space to sort of learn about as well is, there's, there are a lot of benefits to bringing this on chain, having that data regu- like readily available to anyone who wants it and how you regulate that. It's a lot yeah. more information, but it's all available to you. It is. And if you know how to leverage that or tap into that information, it can help you navigate the type of market dynamics that we saw transpire and centralized crypto credit. If you look at some of the platforms that are um, decentralized lending protocols, they've been doing, I mean, they were able to mitigate that entire crisis relatively unscathed. And I've spoken with folks like um, Sid at Maple, which is a Solana base. Maybe they expand into Ethereum too. Uh, Anyway, decentralized lending protocol, and they've seen a surge of activity from more traditional um, funds. And of course, those crypto funds that operate at the bleeding edge so in the wake of this crisis, you see um, you see a tailwind, as it were, for uh, decentralized lending because it doesn't it lacks sort of that um, l- the lack of transparency that exists, where you have to trust the counterparty, or rather the centralized counterparty, to do proper vetting of its other counterparties in DeFi. Right, you're operating on a relatively peer to peer basis, and Everything in terms of collateral is clear on chain um, and the risk parameters and and the rest. Definitely. And in addition to all of the on-chain data available, just talking about the sort of information overload that I think overwhelms a lot of people. It's, it overwhelms me sometimes, and I've, I like to think I've gotten used to it at least a bit. Um, probably the biggest question I wanted to ask you in this entire recording, just in terms of valuable takeaways for someone trying to wrap their head around this space still. This market is ridiculous from a headline standpoint, from an information standpoint. There's so much going on with working at the block and putting out the amount of content that you do and that the rest of your team does. How do you determine what is material breaking news versus what's not? And how do you how do you really decipher from all of the information that's made available to you what's important? I would say the most important stuff typically is that which you discover through your own sifting through various tools or channels of information. So it's less about relying on people to sort of come to you with what's important, but finding it yourself because it is more raw. It's less sort of um, cleansed with, with, proper 
of public relations wording and lingo. The most incredible tool, and this is just shilling of our data dashboard, but it is one of my most helpful tools in sort of finding stories, right? If you look at a chart, it really tells um, a thousand word story, as it were. For instance, we have a chart that shows the share of BUSD trading on Binance, and that's grown to 34.13%. You kind of mix that with the fact that Binance's volume still throughout various cycles maintain like giga strong um, dominance, it, it tells a story about Binance and you sort of weave this together. You can maybe talk to market participants and you get a story. And, and that's not something that kind of hits your inbox. It's something that you kind of find through the data. And that's one of our strengths, in my opinion. And there are countless examples of that, right? You know, sometimes you see weird things happening, happen with volumes on various NFT marketplaces. What's happening? You go and find out why. But it starts with with data in many instances, at least, at least for me, and I think broadly for a lot of us here at the firm. In terms of navigating um, breaking news, I mean, it's it's pretty it's pretty instinctual i would say so you either kind of if, especially when you have that crystallized knowledge of what has been going on in the space it it helps inform whether this has this is a continuation of that thread right so if you you can't kind of step in and and get that right and gronk everything as as being important but you have the team leaders in place you can kind of guide and uh, guide the newsroom to sort of quickly uh, skate to that news puck, as it were. So that's kind of like that's something that really needs to crystallize over, uh, you know, doing it for several years and getting that muscle memory and and knowing the thread, um, which which is not a very helpful answer. But I would say just if you're in news, you know, just keep at it and and just read read old stories about firms, right? Because They've all changed a lot. Um, Coinbase, for instance, you know, I remember, I remember writing this long story in a hotel room in Boston at like two a.m. And the story was about the unraveling of their institutional business. All these people had left: Adam White, uh, Hunter Mergert, um, countless others, and there was a huge rift between um, Balaji, their their CTO, and their and their president at the time, um, Asif, um, was his name. And thinking about that, um, when you see news about them partnering with Aladdin, them partnering with many different institutions, I think Dan Loeb parked money on Coinbase. It's striking. And, and when you have that context, you can see why it's striking and why it's interesting and, and how the firm has evolved as a story. Um, and then in terms of like maybe more product related announcements that come our way, certainly want to know why it's unique, um, why it is distinguished from the competition. Typically what I do is I'll talk to what, what would be the profile of user and ask them, would you use this and why? 
And typically they give me good questions to ask the person who wants me to um, wax poetic about their new uh, solution. And it helps kind of create a more robust story. And and it's not to be overly, um, you know, critical, but to, to really give them the, the opportunity to answer the questions that the market would have. And in a sense that I think is my role uh, to be a conduit between firms who are trying to sell services and grow market share and the people to whom they're trying to sell their services, as well as the folks who have invested in them. So, you know, when I sit down with a CEO or an executive, I try to ask the questions that I think their investors or equity holders or customers would ask. And that really, I think, makes for uh, very solid reporting. And I think that's the the difference between real reporting and a lot of what you know people are seeing on their timelines and people just uh, opining on like a lot of different things where maybe not providing the correct context or thinking about it with the right user base and whatnot is really you know who are you appealing to who is the market that you're going after and does it make sense are you providing something that is you know solving an issue that's currently there or offering it in a different way right so. Having having sources like that, you know, from like a retail investor standpoint or like individual investor, it's good to have again sources that you can really trust and know that that the positioning of it is in a way to inform rather than manipulate and whatnot. Which is, I think, some of the hard part for someone who doesn't know the difference sometimes of just getting started on where to go and who to start with. Um, so on that front too, in terms of places to get information from other than the block, obviously, because, you know, wouldn't have you on here if that was not a good source of information. But I will definitely admit that I'm someone that goes to Twitter as a first news source more often than not, uh, for better or worse. But for someone who's just getting started on the traditional side of things, who's used to reading Wall Street Journal, The Times, like all of the more basic publications that you get, where would you send them other than the block? This is not an ad, by the way. I think that you have to go to Mr. DB. Uh, I give him a lot of credit for the work that he does. It is um, on un- it's unri- unrivaled speed that I envy. I think that there are um, a number of interesting resources that can kind of familiarize yourself with some of the basics of the market. I'm thinking of maybe Bankless. They do a good job of that and touching on more of the um, technical underpinnings of this market. So I give them a lot of credit there. They also have very great video production quality. They do. If that's something that you're interested in. (laughs) And I actually saw the one guy in the street when I was walking my dogs. Um, But I, I, uh, we were kind of too far, but I was like, why, why aren't you behind a screen? (laughs) You're real. (laughs) You're, you're, yeah, exactly to your point at the beginning. You're, you're, a, you're a real person. Um, now he's going to think I was like starstruck. Might have to cut this. Um, <laughs> that would so imply that, him listening to this, which I would welcome any day. But I'm, I'm not banking on that. <laughs> yeah, you're not banking on that. That's funny. No pun intended. Um, yeah. So those are two resources that I think are are pretty good to get started. And then, of course, the block, we have like several different newsletters that you can subscribe to. We have a blockchain ecosystems newsletter. We have a deals newsletter. We have a, um, I'm probably forgetting one. We have a daily newsletter that goes out and tries to, in very like plain 
um, more uh, conversational in a more conversational tone, tell you exactly what's happened in those specific verticals. And you can, you can kind of find those at the block, uh, the block.co. Perfect. There you go. And then um, the scoop, you can listen to that too. We have some fun conversations. You do. Yeah. When I'm Frank not, is, when I'm not ill. <laughs> yeah. Frank is actually recovering from the dreaded man flu, which yeah. any, any woman knows they've never been sick. Like a man is sick. So apparently it's, it's a different thing. And I applaud you for, you know, crawling out of your, your barricades to do this recording. It means a lot that you survive in advance and can, can even speak right now. Cause I, I hear it's pretty debilitating. Yeah. It's um, everyone has their cross to bear. <laughs> doing God's work. Um, and I, I think even on like the you know, more serious note on kind of the God's work thing, there's so much fear mongering in, in media and in content and especially around crypto too, right. Which is such a polarizing topic for so many people. Um, and a lot of the content that you see out there is, it does seem, you know, biased one way or the other quite a bit. And I think finding sources that are looking at things through a more objective lens in a space that is so you know, emotionally charged on both sides is, it's difficult to find sometimes, but the ones that, you know, can do it the right way. It's, it's, we it's need hard. it more than ever. Yeah. It's hard. I mean, I try to, you know, I don't, I don't have any opinions. So that really helps me um, <laughs> with my job. I've never really had an independent thought for my own since the day I was born. <laughs> and so I'm basically, you know, like a uh, tabula rasa of, of information that I can spew out to the world. Um, but yeah, not that's, that's that speaking of God, that is a, that is a gift from him that, that <laughs> many people are not, many people need to have very, very strong, um, fiery opinions. Obviously I'm joking. I do have, I do have some, I do have <laughs> that some would be opinions. very impressive in the world we no, live in today. I am, if you manage I'm, to I'm, have I'm, no opinions. <laughs> um, yeah, but it's, it's tough. I mean, it, it's like, you know, everyone is, everyone's kind of operating within their own, you know, preconceived notions about things. And, and that's why I think like, even when I get stories that I think are very exciting, um, like I, again, I really try to go to many different people because there's always going to be one or two that say, this is really stupid or mm -hmm. it's been done a thousand times. I'm like, ah, oh, really? Like I was super excited about this. So it's, it's for me, um, an exercise of tapping into, um, folks with very diverse, um, views, whether that's on a product or a specific policy proposal, um, or something else. And that's what I try to do. And do it, you do, uh, and you do it well, I think. I'm clearly biased because I have you on my podcast here. Um, we could, I could, you know, ask you questions all day here, considering you have no opinions. Well, I, uh, I, objectively. I, I took out the trash, so I have, <laughs> I don't need to escape into the, uh, into the street before night, before nightfall. Yeah, apparently in New York you have to take your trash out uh, before nightfall so you don't run into the rats. So well, I had one literally. I had one literally lunge at me a few weeks ago when <laughs> I was opening the trash. It came. It like jumped out. I'm telling you, I haven't screamed like that 
probably ever. I mean, Taking that was out trash as a contact sport. Who would have thought? It's really terrifying. <laughs> well, um, I, I applaud you for facing your fears on that one and getting it done in the daytime. Um, what's worse for you, cockroaches or rats? Like, would you rather wake up with a rat in your bed or like a hundred cockroaches? I mean, a hundred versus one is a little bit of a different thing. So at that okay, point, I choose the rat. That's probably that's probably my bias speaking because I'm much more I'm much much more grossed out by rats. So I had to like sort of find equilibrium there. But um, okay, fine. One or one. Well, cockroaches are kind of hard to kill too, right? I mean, I, I think my. Are you an expert rat killer? <laughs> I'm, well, I'm from the sticks. So, I mean, we do have mice around rats are a little bit bigger. So that's kind of a different thing. Chicago is uh, the U S rat capital though, for anyone who's really? ever questioned that, by the way, yes. Uh, rattiest city in the U S which I don't see them often, which is good. I'd, I'd probably pick, I'd probably pick the cockroach. I mean, there's not really like a, a win in this scenario, but I one time did like a hurricane relief trip in college down in Texas mm-hmm. after hurricane Harvey, And one of the houses that we worked on, kid you not, I was literally two feet away. Someone hit one of the ceiling tiles down to, you know, knock it out because we were cleaning out the whole house and a whole nest of cockroaches fell down. So still disgusting, but I think um, I've had close enough run-ins with them. I had one on my head, like not that that was a fun time whatsoever. I hate bugs, but I think, I think I'd choose that. The rats are big. So that freaks me out a little bit more. Yeah, I totally agree on the same page. When I was in Florida, I mean, you see, you see all sorts of gnarly creatures. I went to Australia once and there was a spider. They call it the huntsman. That's like the size of your palm. I probably came across a few. I came across a few of those. And that is why I never go to Australia. Yeah. I think they have every type of poisonous snake in Australia as well. So looks like a beautiful place. Great accents. Um, Not sure of, not sure how like keen I'd be to go there. I mean, I'd still go given the opportunity, but in terms of mm-hmm. bugs and wildlife, not necessarily not my jam, but what can you do? Chicago's I, not all sunshine and roses either, I guess. So yeah, sometimes it's clouds and wind. Yeah. Although is- when I went, it was pretty, it was pretty, well, no, it was actually quite cold when I was there. That's that's a safe bet. I'm sad. I missed you last time that you were here. You got to see, some of the heroes. I got to see thing. all the, I got to see like m- the glitterati of crypto Chicago. Except for from, me. Except, except for, for me. you. But, but I saw your, your dear boss. So that's. Shout out to Gunny. If he happens to listen to this. I had a best. really good cappuccino with him at the Hoxton. That is the hub. Yeah. West loop in Chicago is the crypto spot. <laughs> I'm glad that I was tipped off because all my colleagues, when we were there, they stayed in like what do you call it? North loop on the other side? Is that river even North? Thing? Yeah. Is, yeah. is North loop a thing? No, no, it's, it's river North. And then there's the loop, but <laughs> the loop, the loop. Yeah. Everybody You'll have to hook them up next time they come here though. We'll treat them right. We'll take them out. We have all the food wrecks for you. Um, but I do want to sort of wrap this up just cause I know that I could talk about Chicago all day. You don't even live here. And I feel like you could too, uh, since we kind of got you Chicago pilled, but I always ask the same questions at the end of this podcast and it's sort of just big ones, right? Really more amusing than anything. Um, but looking at, you know, if crypto as anyone working in the space, what would it take for crypto to succeed at scale? Um, you know, become as big as that we think that it could be, you know, in it for the tech, right? Um, what would it take for it to reach that point? Something that's missing today or something that needs to continue. And on the flip side of that, 
if we look back 10 years from now and not say crypto to zero, but crypto fails in a way that it never reaches max acceptance and usage like we think that it could, what would the reason for that be? Well, a global apocalypse could be one. <laughs> Easy. <laughs> so I'll... Uh... <laughs> That's that's a cop out answer, but it's true. Um, everything would go to zero in a nuclear winter. Obviously, and I'm sure a lot of people who come on the show say this: we need to abstract away a lot of the complexities. We also need to figure out, like, especially for these more retail consumer applications, better um, incentive models that sort of don't necessarily just rely on the price of the underpinning token going up. So how do we create equilibrium and as much as there are levers you can pull if price goes down or stabilizes that keeps people interested in using whatever it is. I, I like to think of Stepin and they actually had news out um, about a new subscription model. So that's a good example, right? When Stepin's tokens, and I think there's three of them, were all mooning, you, you're more inclined to use it. So how do you figure out a way to keep interest um robust and strong despite declining uh, liquid asset prices. So I think that's something we need to think about as well as the the UX and it extracting, um, abstracting away sort of the crypto-ness of many of these different applications. So those are the two big things. And I think those are two of the most important things. So I'd, I'd leave it at that. And once we do that, I think we'll see more adoption i think you know it's it's going to be you know especially right now we're entering a period of infrastructure and less of a focus on tokens so that that's good right because again going back to my point it creates more discipline we don't have easy money that we can sort of um lean into when when the going gets tough we actually have to build things that that people want to use and that are sustainable. So I think out of this this period of time in which macro is a bit scary, you'll see some really interesting things um, being whipped up in the in the background. Definitely, yeah. The builders are still building right now. That's for sure, as everyone so often says. And it's got to be things that are sustainable, right? At this point, I feel like a lot of the vapor has been sort of wiped away given current market conditions and whatnot, which net positive for sure. So. Zombie apocalypse, sustainable infrastructure for bad. the long run, simplifying things, all of the important stuff. Um, odds are low, but never zero on that zombie apocalypse part too. So fair to mention, I guess. It's non-zero. Non-zero, always, right? Well, thank you so much for being on, Frank. I can't believe this is the first time that we've talked to each other. I feel like I know you from the internet, which is weird because the internet always kind of works that way. But hope to have you back in Chicago here. Thanks again. And absolutely. Thank, thank you. Too. I want to, I want to go to that. I want to go to that. Um, there's that burger place. Isn't that? Yes. Yeah. That's yeah. by our office. You should come through. We'll, we'll get a burger. I remember I was, I was um, getting lunch with someone at the time and they were like, do you want to do healthy or not healthy? And I opted for healthy. So I missed out on the opportunity to uh, check that place out. Big but mistake. We'll add huge. that to your roster here. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you to chatting. everyone for listening. All opinions expressed by your hosts and the podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of the hosts or any of their affiliates. 
This podcast is for commercial and informational purposes only, is not investment advice, and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. We are not recommending any securities or cryptocurrencies, nor is this an offer or sale of a security or cryptocurrency.